bring clean energy, as clean as we can reasonably be, at low enough prices where it's accessible to a lot of people. And if you just look at nuclear in isolation and you say, well, it has the potential to cause harm, you're ignoring the benefits that it might have, and you're ignoring the alternatives to nuclear. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'd like to explore the impacts of the precautionary principle in public policy. Many people think that the precautionary principle is the safest way forward in any type of decision that a government can make. We shouldn't use a tool until we're sure it won't harm us. This just makes natural sense, doesn't it? The application of the precautionary principle in European energy policy, for example, has led to the shutdown of Germany's nuclear fleet due to fears over nuclear waste or potential meltdowns. It's led to strong labeling laws for GMO products and many other decisions of which I am not yet aware uh, and I may find out. Today, I'll be interviewing an economist who has a unique interdisciplinary perspective on the environment, health, and labor economics to get an expert opinion on this topic. I came across his insightful work uh, in references to a Freakonomics podcast that I listened to. The episode was entitled, Nuclear Energy Isn't Perfect, Is It Good Enough? If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. Please share it with your friends and come chat with us on the Facebook group, The Rational View. Provide me with your opinions and your feedback. I'd love to hear it. Matthew Nidell is an economics professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. He is also a faculty member with the Earth Institute and the Columbia Population Research Center. Nidell received his PhD in economics from UCLA and has performed policy work for various organizations, including the Environmental Protection Agency, Institute of Medicine, Rockefeller Foundation, and World Bank. He specializes in environmental health and labor economics, applying the latest empirical methods to examine the relationship between the environment and a wide range of measures of well-being, including worker productivity and human capital, and how human behavior affects these relationships. Dr. Nidell, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for coming on. So, could you tell us just a little bit about your background and, and you know, where you come from, how you got into the field of economics? You know, I, I, I first got into economics as, as an undergraduate student. Um, I was in the in environmental engineering. I was an environmental engineer as my first major when I chose uh, college. And I was looking for something that was a little bit more flexible than engineering. Um, it's a big switch. It was a big switch, but it's actually not that uncommon of a switch. Um, a lot of people from engineering switch over to economics because it's in, in the social sciences, it's one of the more mathematically oriented science, social sciences. 
So it wasn't that uncommon of a switch. And I just, I took my first economics class and I remember thinking, this is it. This is kind of an aha moment for me. And I really enjoyed it and got kind of hooked at an early stage. Well, what do you like about economics? What I like about it is that one, it's, it's studying human behavior, which I think is really interesting. I think thinking of society as a laboratory always fascinated me. But it has strong analytical tools for analyzing the behavior of people, right? There's, there's frameworks for thinking about how, how people behave. Um, you know, things in, in economics, we talk about utility maximization, right? The idea that people are trying to get the, get the most out of, out of, their, out of their life um, with, with the means at their disposal um, is a framework that's, that's quite strong in, in thinking about a lot of behaviors that we see people engaging in. And that can also add up at the market level too. I really found it fascinating thinking about how, how markets work and thinking about um, the kind of role that demand and supply play in determining the price that good sells for and how much people buy of that good. And that was a really rigorous tool that I thought was, was, was very useful for getting a lot of insights into, into, into outcomes that we might see in society. Hmm. So I went through some of your research that you have uh, listed on your on your webpage. Uh, you've published extensively on the impacts of pollution on public health. I noticed you've published several papers discussing the links between particulate pollution, especially in and childhood asthma, for example. Now, myself as a child, I, I grew up in southern Ontario, kind of just downwind from Detroit, uh, and. Uh, you know, I, I had very bad asthma uh, in my high school years. Uh, we had the most beautiful sunsets, though, uh, <laughs> all those particles in the air. But, uh, you know, I was, I was taking my inhaler overdosing on that stuff until I moved away for university, and then it just went away. So <laughs> what, what are some of your findings? Um, could you, you know, what have you learned uh, from studying this? Yeah, I, what I've learned is, is consistent with, with, with what you observed. Um, yourself. There, there's strong evidence that, that pollution affects our health. Um, and I'd say that evidence has been demonstrated across various pollutants in, in, in multiple settings, um, using various different methodological designs to try to understand the relationship between pollution and health. Um, and we see increases in, in asthma hospitalizations when pollution gets higher. Um, we see increases in things like mortality when pollution gets higher. And a lot of these effects can be, can be relatively quick, right? That these are things that are happening kind of like same day, right? Or within a couple of days of exposure, we can see these, these worsening outcomes. Um, and, and I think that also one big part of my research is that a lot of these effects go, go beyond health outcomes. Um, or at least, you know, the health outcomes that we most often and look at, you know, what's, what's important is that a lot of those changes and things like asthma hospitalizations and mortality, they often only happen to a small subset of the population, right? Certainly when we think about mortality, it's typically the most um, susceptible part of the population to begin with. And then some of the effects that I've found on outcomes like worker productivity are affecting much healthier parts of the population, right? So it's not just limited to a certain segment of the population is being affected by pollution. It's, 
it's hard to imagine there's anyone who's not affected by it one way or another. Is, is that link on worker productivity of like through sick days and, and, you know, not mortality, but, but just sickness? Um, it's, it's the, the worker productivity measures are looking at people who are not sick enough that they stay home. They actually go to their job and they go to their job and we have measures of productivity at the end of each day. The first study that we did on this was looking at agricultural workers who are out in the field and their paid piece rate, meaning they're paid for kind of each bucket of berries they collect. So we have detailed measures of how productive they are every day. So what we find is that on higher pollution days, it doesn't affect whether or not they show up at work. They still show up at work and they still work the same number of hours. So it's not, pollution isn't so bad that it's knocking them out and, and making them need to take a day of rest, but they go out in the field and they're still working. And we see that their productivity drops when pollution is higher. And we think it's just more subtle effects from pollution. We think of more kind of subclinical and transient effects. And you have day by day uh, knowledge or, or measures of the pollution and the, and the productivity that you can correlate. Exactly. We have daily measures of each worker's productivity that we map uh, onto uh, daily measures of, of pollution and other environmental factors as well. Wow. I'm surprised it's that sudden or that all those that quickly, maybe surprised, but not surprised <laughs> from, from my experience. Uh, yeah. Some of your work uh, ties together very diverse topics and you mentioned your, your research methodology. I'd like to explore that a little bit. Uh, I was looking through your list and you have a paper called uh, particulate pollution and the productivity of pear packers. I, I love the alliteration. That's very, very well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now, I've discussed on this podcast in the past a lot of the ways that statistics and research results can be biased. Uh, you know, if you're not using Bayesian statistics to to look at the impacts of of correlations, for example, you can you can pick out a significant correlation if you sift through the data enough. Uh, you know, looking at various different potential correlations. So, in, in your work, what precautions do you take to avoid the this problem of of data sifting? or um, to ensure your results are robust? Do you pick a particular thing and go after just one thing at a time? Um, that's usually what I do. And that's and it's, it's a great question because, you know, we know there's so much behind the scenes that's, that's happening, that researchers are making choices. And this is where, you're right, Bayesian is, is, is a way of dealing with that because you can put all those choices kind of into your prior. Um, but instead, we see, you know, researchers making a lot of decisions behind the scenes and we kind of only see the, the final product. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of the steps are, are about, you know, self, self-discipline, right? What I've been doing kind of more, more recently is thinking about pre-specification analysis plans where you specify ahead of time the research, the regression model that you tend on, on, on utilizing. Um, that's one approach. What I'd say for one of the things that's that's actually worked quite well for some of the work I've done on pollution and productivity is we had our first paper that was done on, on farm workers, which I had mentioned. And then you had mentioned the study on, on pear packers, which I'm happy to go into more detail on that if you want. But one of the things we did there was we had all very similar measures, right? We were measuring worker productivity at a factory, we were measuring environmental exposure at that factory. So we had the same 
statistical model that we use for the farm workers, we apply to the pear packers. So we already kind of figured out the model that we wanted to estimate. And then we just use that same model. So we felt like that was a measure that was good at reducing that likelihood of us kind of searching and finding a result that, that, that might be significant, but is not really the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's good. Um, and I'm, I'm amazed at, at some of, some of the, the inferences you can draw from this data. It's very, uh, a very productive method of inquiry. I love this the connections you're making between pollution and all these different things that you can measure economically. It's very interesting. Thank you. You published a, a paper that, that, that I saw that, that kind of brought me to you. I was looking at a Freakonomics podcast that had referenced your work and that's how I, I, I found out about your work. You published a paper called the unintended effects from halting nuclear power production evidence from the Fukushima Daiichi accident. And why did you write this paper? This paper um, we wrote um, because we were interested in the impacts of a drastic change in, in energy use, right? So as, as, as you know, and I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners know, after the Fukushima Daiichi accident happened, um, shortly thereafter, Japan ceased using nuclear energy as a source of power. So they had to make a, a big change in how they were supplying, supplying power to, to people's homes. And what they ended up doing was replacing that with imported fuels, uh, mostly from China, right? Importing uh, energy um, through fossil fuels and, and producing that um, on, their, on their soil to, to provide energy to people's homes. So was that, was that coal or gas or do you know? I believe it was a mix. I don't have that. I don't have that off the top of my head, but I believe it was a, a mix of things. Um, so they're now trying to, to produce energy from these sources. And, and it's interesting because a lot of my work would say, oh, well, let's think about studying the air quality impacts from that, that they were going from using nuclear energy, which has kind of no, no impact on, on local air pollution. Um, and then they switched to using a fossil fuel, which is going to have an impact on, on local air pollution levels. Um, we actually decided not to go that angle, and we instead went the, the price angle. So the idea here was that nuclear is providing energy to people's homes, and now and nuclear is providing energy to people's homes at a certain price. And now suddenly you stop producing nuclear and you switch to another source of fuel, and that source of fuel is going to be more expensive. And people are now paying more to heat their homes and to cool their homes. Um, so we wanted to look at the impact of those higher prices on people's energy consumption first, and then to say, well, if there's a change in energy consumption, how might that affect their health, right? So the idea here is this is back to like, you know, simple economics that I enjoy. When, when, when the price of a good gets higher, people generally consume less of it. Um, but what's different about using energy is that it, it helps protect you from the elements, right? So when it's particularly hot out or it's particularly cold out, you know, you can go inside and you can protect yourself from that extreme weather. And the heat inside your home um, is, is going to help you know, keep you safe. 
right? So it's, so it's an important kind of input into, into our health. Um, but what we found was that as energy prices went up, people used less energy as a result. And we found um, an increase in mortality when they had more extreme weather, when particularly during cold weather times, right? That during cold weather, people were cutting back on their energy use because they were saving money on their energy bills. Um, and as a result, their health suffered. And that's, that's the main finding from our paper. So how significant was this? Like, you, did you quantify the, the mortality or the, or the, the economic impact or what was the, what was the measure that you quantified? Yeah. What we did at the end of the day was to say, um, in 2011 was when they stopped using nuclear power as a source of source of energy. We looked at the mortality impacts over the next four years, um, to say how many additional deaths did we see because of the higher energy prices? And what we found, our estimate was there, there were an extra 1,280 deaths because of those higher energy prices. Wow, that's that's very precise. So 1,280 deaths over how long period? It was over a four-year period. Over four years. Okay, that that's that's interesting. There there was a group that looked at the particulate impact of the nuclear shutdown as well. I think it was Karechi et al. Um, and they published in like 2018 and they looked at, you know, tw- 2011 to 2017, the particulate impacts from the, from the nuclear shutdowns killed 28,000 people. Wow. Just from the fossil fuel uh, ramp ups. Yeah. Uh, so, so you, I mean, combined th- this decision to stop using nuclear power basically killed more people than Chernobyl every year after the accident. That's right. Stunning. <laughs> and that's, and, and, and similarly, you know, we, we find that, that the deaths from the higher energy prices were more than the deaths from, from Fukushima, um, from, from both, you know, the, the radiation itself, which there's some uncertainty as to how many deaths are there, but from like the evacuation process, they estimate somewhere around a thousand deaths that happen from, you know, a poor evacuation plan. And our estimates suggest that the deaths from the higher energy prices are more than the deaths from evacuation. Wow. In your, in your paper, you call attention to the precautionary principle as, as being particularly problematic. The uh, EU has decided to use the precautionary principle as the basis for its energy policy decisions. And they've been doing scientific analyses of different power mixes to see if they uh, are to prove that they can do no harm. Um, naively, this seems to be the safest way forward because, you know, why use something unless you're proved, unless you know it's not going to hurt you? Uh, why do you think this is a bad decision to use the precautionary principle? I'd say it's, it's a bad decision because it, the, the main reason is it just, it, it ignores the alternative for many decision you're making, right? It just thinks about one thing in isolation and it just asks, can this thing harm us? And it forgets, it just ignores the entire picture of what we're trying to do, right? You're just looking at each thing in isolation and you don't, you want to look at things in, in totality and you say, we have a whole set of 
sources of energy that we can use. And we want to pick amongst those sources of energy to find the best outcomes we can find, right? Bring clean energy, as clean as we can reasonably be at low enough prices where it's accessible to a lot of people. And if you just look at nuclear in isolation and you say, well, it has the potential to cause harm, um, you're ignoring the benefits that it might have and you're ignoring the alternatives to nuclear, right? Um, so when I, when I think of the precautionary principle, the, the main problem I have with it is that, you know, it's sort of built on this notion of, you know, you're, you're better safe than sorry, right? Let's, let's know something is good for us before we, before we do it. Let's make sure we know there's no harm. And that's kind of a hard way to set policy for an entire nation because that may work at the individual level, right? Better safe than sorry may be a sensible thing to do when you're living your day-to-day life, right? If I think about here, here's, here's, here's sort of a very, very kind of relevant example, right? When microwave ovens first came out, people were worried having them in their homes that they would, um, that they would cause radiation, right? Um, so being near a microwave would be bad. So, so if you got, and I remember this growing up and my parents got a microwave and I think they put it in the closet, right? Um, so they were taking a better safe than sorry kind of approach, right? You put something in the microwave and then you walk away from it, right? And this is like the early eighties, you know, lots, lots of, lots of different thoughts about, about nuclear in general. So you walk away from it and okay. At the time we didn't really know it was a new product. And also I was kind of young, so I had no idea. So I was just following the advice that my parents gave me. We've learned later that that, that was completely unnecessary. Um, but I don't think that that was a bad decision for us to make that decision to walk away. And the reason I don't think it was a bad decision to walk away is that the costs were just incredibly low. For me to have to walk from one side of the kitchen while I'm microwaving something, it's not really impacting my life in any significant way, right? Maybe, maybe I lose a few seconds, but I don't, I don't know that that adds up to have any impact on, on my life in any meaningful way. So better safe than sorry at the individual makes sense, right? You're crossing the street, be a little bit extra careful, right? In a lot of ways, this, this adds up and this can be important. But now to say that that can now apply to millions of people or billions of people, however it's being applied, I don't know that it adds up right? Because now you're making decisions that are affecting lots of people. And now the costs become much, much higher, right? So our paper was one example, right? They, 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 they get off of nuclear because of an accident. And that's, it's, it, in some ways, it's an understandable reaction, right? An accident happens and you think about safety. So you think about shutting down the source of, of the problem, Right. Um, but it's not thinking it all the way through and saying, but now there's going to be an impact from shutting it down. And the impact from shutting it down is going to be higher prices, more particulate matter, right? Not to mention more greenhouse gases that are, that are going to affect the climate 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. So now the costs are much bigger. And that's where the precautionary principle, it feels like it breaks down when you try to apply it at an aggregate level. The costs become much bigger and you need to factor them in. It would 
paralyze society. And I think that's one of the, the big problems with the precautionary principles. You can't do anything that doesn't yeah. have some possibility of harm. Yeah. Um, and, and the things that we are doing, our status quo is horrible. <laughs> it causes a lot of harm. People die all the time. And from our energy mix, right? If it's, 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 it's stunning to compare the impacts of, of, of fossil fuel particulate pollution, which you can measure. There's a, there's a PM 2.5 index, which is the particulate matter 2.5 microns or below in the air, which you get from burning coal and, and to a small extent from burning anything. And you compare that to say the impacts of radiation from a nuclear accident from a very rare, like Chernobyl or, or Fukushima, and if you look at the the levels of of radiation and compare that to mortality, which you know we have available indices that map this, and even if you use the linear no threshold uh, system and assume that every little bit of radiation causes uh, a chance of of, of dying, uh, it's it's stunning. Like you would never have evacuated Fukushima. Uh, the, the the exclusion zone, the risk of mortality in the exclusion zone right now is less than the risk of mortality from living in Tokyo due to diesel exhaust, right? Yeah. They should have evacuated Tokyo first and moved them to Fukushima. It would have increased the life expectancy of everybody. Yeah, it's... You know, you you hear a lot of numbers like that that just kind of are, are puzzling, right? You know, we for whatever reason it comes from, and we we can get into that. I know you, you've you've talked about that before that there's a a fear with nuclear, and you know, my my understanding is it, is it has something to do with with the salience of events, right? So people are dying every day in Tokyo. From, from pollution or their suffering, right? And this is happening every single day with no exceptions. And it's happening to, to lots of people. But when it's happening, you don't know exactly why it's happening. Just someone gets admitted to the hospital or somebody dies. This is stuff that happens any day anyway. It's not, not every death or every hospitalization or every sickness is due to pollution. Sometimes they're due to other reasons. So you don't know when this is happening, what it's due to. But when a nuclear event happens, we all know what's happening, right? There's the salience of the event that, that makes everybody hone in on it. And we're able to kind of, and, and even then there's some imprecision in, in, in tracing events back to the, the meltdown. So we still have estimates of what the radiation deaths are going to be from, from Fukushima. But we can't say this you know, cancer case is due to Fukushima. We can still only do it probabilistically. But there's still this notion that we have this very clear kind of cause and effect relationship, one that like a cause and effect that like we, we feel like we can see with our own eyes that I feel like makes people particularly against nuclear as a source of, 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 of energy when it's ignoring the totality of, of, of what's happening. It's really stunning how quickly people uh, uh, can can blame radiation on their can on their can or blame their cancer on radiation if you if you look at um you know the the chernobyl liquidators for example as as a rule getting you know relatively high doses 100 millisieverts 
plus per person, uh, which I think, you know, at, at most it causes a 1% increase in the prevalence of cancer amongst that population. So it goes from a 40% chance of getting cancer to a 41% chance of getting cancer sometime in your life. And, but without the, the analyses of science to back it up, everybody in that area who got cancer blamed it on Chernobyl. And, you, you know, it, it's obvious to these people that this is because of Chernobyl, that cancer, you know, if you can blame it on something, it makes you feel good. Yeah. If you just get cancer from breathing oxygen, you know, you, well, it's, it's the air, you know, nature isn't bad to us. We don't, you don't think about it this way. People need to have this cause and effect. And it, it's, e it's easy to hang these sort of things on the bogeyman that, that people have demonized. I think, I don't know. It's, it's, it's similar to it, the analogy I like to make is, is, is flying in airplanes, you know, airplanes do crash, but we still fly them. And once in a while, one of them crashes and it's a huge event because it's so rare and, and you seem helpless to, to do anything about it as a passenger, for example. So you have this fear. But if you were to drive the same distance, you're much more likely to die. And people accept that because it's, it's expected. It, how, do we, how do we break these mindsets or, or you know, establish in people's minds the real risks? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a great question, um, and I think in this case it's it's kind of the million dollar question. And it's funny you use that analogy because I use the the same exact one um, about flying versus driving, because flying is so much safer. Yet people tend to be more scared of flying, and I think it's 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 something to do with the salience, right? When a plane crashes, it's all over the media, right? We had a you know a few years ago there was something like four plane crashes in a year. And it was all over the media and people were thinking, oh, no, this is a time when when flying's not safe. But still, if you add up the deaths from those plane crashes, it's, you know, it's it just gets dwarfed by the number of people who die in car accidents, even in your worst flying you know, year where there's the most accidents. It's it's hard to know how to get past that. I mean, that's quite frankly, it's not something that I, I have a good answer for. Um, I think we're getting deeper into psychology here. Um, I could speculate um, but I don't really know the answer to that. Um, I do, I do find it interesting that, um, you know, when, when I was a kid, um, I grew up on Long Island, um, and they were building a nuclear power plant, um, not too far from where I lived about 20 miles away, the Shoreham nuclear power plant. And, um, Interestingly, I was I was a kid and I, I probably protested against that plant because I know my, my parents were protesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure I was I was part of that protest. Um, I don't think my mom's too pleased that I that I've changed my view on nuclear. Um, but, uh, you know, a billion roughly a billion dollars was spent building that plant and it didn't ever come to light and produce one megawatt of energy. Right. A lot of money was spent on it. And, you know, why did it never come to produce any energy? People were, were protesting it. People were concerned that there would be no evacuation routes. It was, you know, Chernobyl happened and people said, we don't want to have the next Chernobyl. Um, and, you know, just we, we want to have a society where people have 
an influence on what's happening, right? We don't want to be in a dictatorship where just, you know, a, a ruler's making decisions over what's best. We want people to have influence, but we want people to be informed in the decisions that they're making. And like all of this, so much of this is happening in, in, in COVID, right? Where, where there's so much misinformation that was spread and people were making bad decisions based on, on misinformation. And it's interesting to think with the with the a lot of that nuclear movement that was before the internet, right? So people were just getting their news, you know, their information kind of word of mouth. Um, but now we have misinformation spreading about it, about nuclear, like the same way misinformation about COVID spreads, right? And I think it's got that stronghold on us, and I I don't know how we break it. Um, I'll say it seems like there might be a little bit of a sea change happening in the last year or so? Yeah, I think I think we've been seeing the um, the effects of not having nuclear, uh, especially in, in Europe with, with Germany's pogrom against um, nuclear and shutting down their perfectly good nuclear fleet and, and pushing the EU to do the same. And then France kind of opposing that. And then the two of them uh, fighting over what the future of energy should be. And, and you know, some of the unintended consequences of, of Germany's anti-nuclear shutdowns include laying European energy sovereignty at the feet of, of Putin with with the Russian gas and the Nord Stream pipeline and, and, you know, all of these things. I think that probably gave him the impetus to invade Ukraine, um, you know, knowing that he that Europe was at his at his feet, basically, because they'd shut down their, their nuclear. So. Yeah, I, I think we're seeing the impacts of not having nuclear. And I think we, you know, as much as I, I understand psychology and that numbers and facts typically cause people to double down on their opinions rather than change their minds, I, I don't know very much what else to do. Um, so, you know, I think at least on the nuclear issue, not many people have thought about it seriously. Um, this is more of a tribal issue than anything else. And people, you know, opposition is an inch deep and a mile wide in my estimation. And if you take the time to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, you do change minds. And that, that's more my experience, but it takes a, an army of people to do that. And that, that's why I, I do this podcast is that I'm teaching an army to, to go and have these one-on-one -on -one conversations with their parents who, who protested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the day I change my my mother's mind will be will be an interesting day. Um, but yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You know that these changes one at a time, and hopefully it's it's the right person's ear that you're you're bending here, right? And and sometimes this is where 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 market forces can help, where economics can help. You know, and I think all the stuff that you you were alluding to is why are we thinking about nuclear now? It's because we were relying on, on one country for a big chunk of our, of our energy. And now suddenly we're, we're at war with them. Right. And, and we're not getting along with them. So we, we need to, we, we now facing higher prices and we're concerned about those higher prices. And we could say like, okay, let's just go to town and build all the solar and wind we can that's not going to help us overnight, right? That's not going to help us with the winter this year. You know, I think we're a little bit lucky that it hasn't been the coldest winter in Europe, but that's not going to help us overnight. The thing that can help us overnight is to bring nuclear back online, right? And bring it back online. And, you know, Japan has talked about doing that too. 
um, in bringing those reactors back online. Um, it's it's built into the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. to to incentivize um, you know nuclear power plants. In, in California, they were going to close um, Diablo Canyon, and they decided not to um, because it was an important source of energy. So some of this is market forces that are helping us get to bringing nuclear back on, right? The higher prices, we know no, no politician likes higher prices for energy, right? That's, that's, that's always the, the fastest way to get kicked out of office. Um, so if you can bring people lower prices, then sometimes they'll say, oh, okay, maybe I, maybe I won't pay attention to why I'm getting lower prices. I just get lower prices and I benefit from that. Um, and that's, I think part of what we're seeing with, with, with nuclear kind of getting a bit of a resurgence. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised that the leaders in the environmental movement haven't latched on to nuclear as the solution, because I think had it been discovered just recently, they would be all over it as, as the silver bullet. I think there is an ideology amongst leading environmentalists that um, because all power production or all industry in some way uh, can have consequences that we should shut it down. There's a, there's a degrowth mindset in in the the environmental leadership, and nuclear basically frees us from the degrowth constraint. It, it decouples our productivity from our environmental footprint to a certain extent. And and there have actually been quotes by leading environmentalists that you know we shouldn't let society have this toy because you know it derails our entire degrowth movement. Um, and but you know you've never there aren't any countries I think that have energy poverty and not have real poverty. Like energy is the source of economy, is the source of health, is the source of of uh, plenty. I I don't see how the degrowth can work without causing severe problems and in, in mortality and health and education and wellness worldwide. I, do you have insights into that? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't. I don't see how that that can exist either. And and I think one thing that's interesting is you know if you know if if we think about you know nuclear coming along today, let's say it were invented today, how how would environmentalists react to it? Um, we can think the same thing of like wind and solar. I mean, it hasn't so much happened today either, but it's but it's more recent, and people love wind and solar. Um, because it's it's renewable, right? We're not actually digging up any resources to to actually get that extra unit of of energy that we have. But but they're not without harm, right? They're they're not completely harm free. Um, you know, wind wind has wind, wind energy has some pretty significant effects. We know it can affect things like like bird populations, which 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 are important aspect of biodiversity. Right, um, that that a lot of environmentalists care about. We know that the wind turbines, you know, they they create you know noise and shadow effects that that can be pretty harmful to people living near those um, devices. Not not to mention all the you know all the all the resources that go into to building these these turbines too. And you know, I think if you actually add up the numbers from 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 deaths related to to, to wind and 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 solar. It's actually more than than deaths due to due to nuclear, right? 
because of, of constructions with, you know, accidents with, with, with building these things and, 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 and other things that come from it. It's, it's hard. I mean, the, the environmental movement is, I think has produced a lot of great results over time. It's made us aware of things that we needed to be aware of. Um, I think, you know, some of the work that that's come from, you know, Silent Spring and Rachel Carson has been incredibly useful to think about the role of, of, of pesticides and in, in affecting our well-being. And, you know, things like that were, were, were largely unknown or, or, or were, were kind of, you know, buried under the rug and we didn't know about it. And bringing this to our attention is, is, is really useful. And I think we continue to need to have that. Um, but then at the end of the day, when we make policy decisions, we need to, we need to balance things. We need to think about, we have all this evidence on the harms and we have all the evidence on the benefits. Um, let's try to think about setting a policy that, that balances those and, and gives people access to energy that has the least amount of damage to their health. Um, and I think that's just, you know, that's the important next step. And how, how do we get to that next step is, is, is the hard thing. Yeah, yeah. I want to take issue a little bit with with the statement that wind and solar are renewable. This this is a very good marketing campaign of the wind and solar industry, but they're not that different from any other power supply. In fact, they use more materials per kilowatt hour than nuclear does. So they actually have a, a larger mining and materials footprint than nuclear. Um, if you come to think of it, because they have a short lifetime, they're you know twenty five years at most. Uh, whereas nuclear, 50 years, 100 years, possibly in some cases, um, you, you, you balance it out. There's no such thing as renewable energy. There's renewable energy sources, but to harness that energy, you still need all of the, the industrial uh, machinery. And in fact, the, the ramp-ups that these people are calling for to do 100% renewable is, is just uh, boggles the mind. It's like a wartime production footing forever because as soon as you you know you have your 20 year build up you have to start again after 20 years uh it's 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 forever building at, at extremely high levels and for much lower returns on investment for per unit energy so you basically would tie up a much larger fraction of your economy in building energy if you were to go to these uh sources than the nuclear for example uh with its much higher energy density so it's a great marketing campaign. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I don't, I, I'm not familiar with some of the, some of the numbers you cited on the total cost. I was more thinking of the renewables kind of on the margin, right? That okay. once it's up and once it's built, it's, it's clean. And I think we think of, you know, again, this gets back to a little bit of salience. Like we think about um, wind as a source of energy. You think of like windmills, that, you know, you, you went to, to visit the cute little windmill. Maybe you, you saw some windmills and you, you took a trip to, to the Netherlands and you saw the windmills they have that are these nice, you know, kind of pretty well kind of restored classic windmills. So, so we think like, oh, look, it's just, it's just the wind blowing and it's just, it's just taking that, that, that wind blowing and just creating energy. This is, this is wonderful. Like, like this is this is kind of the the plan of the universe kind of thing. Why aren't we all doing this? But you're right. There's 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 tremendous costs associated with 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 building it um, that need to go be factored into it. And most people don't they don't see those 
They don't see those costs. They don't think about those costs. Yeah. And, and you know, going beyond that, the, the problem that of intermittency and the fact that you can't tell the wind when to blow uh, and you can't tell the sun when to shine means that you need a full uh, reliable grid to back up your windmills and solar panels. And, and, you know, people will argue that the cost of solar panels compared to nuclear is so much cheaper. Yes. Well, the cost of a tent as, as opposed to a house is also much cheaper, but you know, real estate isn't, isn't all tents. <laughs> people actually do buy houses and there's reasons it's because of the weather. <laughs> no, I think that's right. Is that we need some kind of, we need an additional source, right? We, we need to solve the intermittency problem. Um, and another thing we, we have to think about with, with scaling up solar and scaling up wind is that right now where we have most of the, most of the solar power and, and wind power are the places where we have the most sun and the most wind, right? We've been strategic about where we put them. So now if we want to scale that up, we have to realize that, all right, you know, putting solar farms in, you know, Minnesota, you're not going to get nearly as much energy as when you're putting them in California. So we've put them in the best places right now. And if we want to keep building our energy, we're going to get lower returns on those investments, even lower than we've already gotten. We should keep doing it, right? Because we, you know, we're getting better and better at, at making solar and wind more efficient, but we still have to think about balancing it with another source. Um, and then the question becomes, well, what is that source? And that's 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 where I feel like it, it, it'd be useful to just have a good debate and, and think about it. I mean, for me, the, the winner seems like like nuclear because it it has just it it's zero carbon emissions, right? I mean, it is a great source of energy for thinking about climate change. Um, it has its downfalls, but every source of energy has its downfalls. I think the, the benefits just outweigh those. And I should make clear, I'm I'm a, I'm a convert. Right. I, I, I was, as I said, I grew up in an anti-nuclear household. And I think for a long time, you know, you just, you just have your views that you have when you've, as you've grown up. And I held on to those views for a long, views for a long time. And it probably wasn't until about, you know, maybe 10 years or, or so ago that, that I really started looking more closely into this. And I've slowly changed my mind. And, you know, my study was sort of one, one piece that, that, that added to that, you know, there were, there are many pieces, but, you know, I, it was important that I, that I became more informed about what's happening. And that's, you know, sort of what we were talking about before is, is, is being kind of properly informed about the risks and the benefits and, and in, in, in taking a stance on that. Was there anything in particular that changed your mind or catalyzed your, your change of opinion? Or was it just a, a combination of a lot of things? It was just that, that being in this field, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm close to this field, this sort of energy field and, and just getting more informed about it over time. I feel like Fukushima was oddly an event that probably switched me to become more pro-nuclear rather than less pro-nuclear because after Fukushima happened, um, it, it was awful. You know, we don't want things like that to happen. But then when you see this is how bad it can be, it's, it's not that bad, right? It could have been much worse. It's not a Chernobyl. This is how much safer it's gotten since Chernobyl. And Chernobyl had more deaths and there were lots of problems that went on in Chernobyl that were avoided here. Um, 
But if this is how bad it gets, it's actually better than I thought it was. Right. Which a lot of people took that event as the catalyst to, to, to revitalize the anti-nuclear movement. And, and for anything, for me, it actually made me shift more into its camp because if that's as bad as it gets, and I don't want that to happen to anyone, but, but I know the alternative is, is happening to everyone. It, is, it seems to be, you can tell which tribe people fall in when you, when you ask what about Fukushima <laughs> and, and listen to the response. Um, and yeah, it could have been worse. If the wind was, was differently, there could have been a lot more radioactivity, enough to actually have measurable health impacts on the population. Uh, but at this point, there were like no measurable health impacts on the population, which, which, you know, this is not a civilization ending problem. Yes, it, you know, the evacuation really tore up a lot of lives and caused a lot of deaths. But, you know, in, in retrospect, sheltering in place is the thing you should do when the, when you're experiencing a, a reactor meltdown. There, there doesn't seem to be any drawbacks to doing that and people shouldn't have been moved out and I, I know they've done now uh, philip thomas who i interviewed uh, last year did something called the j value assessment of of ex life expectancy lost due to evacuation versus life expectancy lost based on the assumption that every radioactive event can cause cancer and yeah, we shouldn't have evacuated Fukushima. Now, in hindsight, it's easy to say we didn't have the data during the emergency when all of the infrastructure was down to make that sort of a, a, a nuanced decision. So, you know, you can't really blame uh, the people. But, you know, a lot of people left that didn't need to, that weren't in the evacuation zone just out of fear. You know, they're saying, you know, there's radiation. So they they just they, they pulled up stakes and left. Uh we need to counter these things and have the tools in place, I think, to make better judgments when these things happen again. Now, some people will say this is never going to happen again, but I mean, I understand the the, the likelihood of, of improbable events and they will happen again, especially if we ramp up nuclear. And what we have to do is, is deal with them rationally. And I know Japan is, is, has a very... Um, interesting policy i guess i'll say about cleaning up the fukushima zone they want to get the the radiation levels in the area below the natural background before they let people come back which is is confusing and and you know not backed up by evidence we know that the the current safety levels are hundreds of times below the measurable health impact levels so they want to get the sit the levels down a hundred times below measurable health impacts before they'll let people back. It's not a good decision. There's a lot of bad things happening in that, in that area. So I think um, our response to these events needs to change if we're going to, to normalize nuclear, we, you know, and, and it's, it's a very harsh thing to say, right? Because, you know, you, you don't want to think about disasters happening or accidents happening, but accidents will happen. We, we accept them in the oil industry. We accept the, the Deep Horizons oil spill. We accept the Exxon Valdez oil spill. We accept these things as, as natural effects of, of the energy, but we don't accept them with nuclear. Nuclear has to be perfect, and it's not different in, in, a, in a qualitative way. And it's interesting because one, I, I, I understand your point about, you know, bringing it down to, to below 
levels of background radiation is going to be incredibly costly to get there. But there's part of me that says, maybe, maybe that's a good response because what it tells people is that if an accident happens, we're going to be super cautious in our cleanup. So it's setting, setting precedent for thinking about how we're going to manage disasters in the future. So I know that if a disaster happens, the government's going to go overboard in trying to maintain safety. So maybe that's a way to counter the excessive fear that people have, right? And the the kind of the the people being too concerned and, and overinflating what the risks are. So maybe if you have this response, it might help temper that. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just I'm just you know kind of thinking aloud that I wonder if that's a, a useful response. It's useful, but it also means that you know opponents will argue that the cost of any uh, accident is far too is unacceptable. It'll bankrupt the country, and you know we've got this Alara principle that all of our nuclear regulations are based on, which is as low as reasonably achievable or something like that, uh, because every potential bit of radiation could cause a death, even though it's not measurable. Uh, and effectively, what that means is that nuclear will be as costly as reasonably possible. So it, it just drives it beyond whatever the comp- competition is, and then you stop. No, and that's, and that's right. And, that, and that's, that's certainly the, the, the counter to, 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 to my point, um, that it's just it's too costly that it, that it makes it impossible to keep going. That, that's the problem that we have, um, I think, in, in looking at these things. We, we need to compare, and we need, uh, you know, as you say, we need balance in, in the approach, and we can't be playing on an unlevel playing field. Even, you know, and it would be nice if we could bring everything up to the level of nuclear safety. Um, and sure, but then all of our energy will be too expensive. We won't be able to have energy anymore. Um, and you don't want to say that we're going to bring down the safety of nuclear because that's horrible to say, <laughs> and that does not fly well at all, <laughs> but okay, well, let's, so what I do is, you know, I argue, let's bring everything up to the level of nuclear oil and gas need to capture all of their emissions. They can't have smokestacks. They have to capture it all and bury it underground, you know, solar and wind need to recycle all of their, all of their natural ingredients and all of the, the mining and, and, and chemicals that they use to produce them have to be uh, captured and stored uh, where they won't harm anyone for a million years. You know, let, let's, let's make these same arguments to competing energies and show how silly it sounds. I, and that, that's, you know, it's easy to do, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful pushing that. Some people may take that seriously, but, <laughs> but, but you're right, because they all at the end of the day, are providing the same thing. They're providing energy to heat our homes, cool our homes, power our devices. They're all creating the same thing. They should all be judged on the same standard. We should be comparing them all equally to each other. And, you know, one thing I enjoyed in the in the, the Freakonomics podcast that I was on was they, they said, well, what about taking a harm reduction approach? What about just thinking about What's the, what's the net impact on harm from, from the different sources of energy and, and think about it from, from that perspective, which is, which is consistent with, with, with how, how I'd been thinking about it. Because you just want to look at the, the net harm 
from nuclear. And, you know, there is harm from, from accidents. There is harm from, from, from radiation. Um, but there are, but there are also huge benefits from there being no effect on, on air quality and, 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 and climate change. So, so if you look at each source of energy in terms of harm reduction, and then you, you pick amongst the ones that have the, the, the least harm, um, that seems like a, a a way to do it. That's that's very in line with 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 a public health approach, right? Thinking about the public's health in 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 mind, um, and I, I appreciated that perspective. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, um, you know, nuclear reactors actually uh, create uh, medical isotopes, so uh, nuclear reactors actually save more lives from cancer than they've they've ever caused. Uh, when you think of it that way. So I think you know, and and that harm reduction approach is like, you know, that first kind of came about in thinking about like methadone clinics for, for treating people with, with heroin addiction and saying like, we, we know methadone is problematic, but if it gets people off of heroin, that's good. Um, and it feels a bit similar here, right? If, you know, nuclear is problematic, it is, we can't deny that. I'm never gonna deny it for, for a second. Every source of energy is problematic. But if it gets us off of, off of fossil fuels, it's, it's worth it because fossil fuels are more problematic. Easily demonstrably orders of magnitude. Yes, that, that, I think I think that that's a, a, a good place to, to end our discussion. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, very insightful work. Uh, good good luck on your on your future endeavors. For coming on the show, I'm going to send you a Rational View T-shirt. Awesome. Um, Thanks for spending your time and, and chatting with us. Yeah, Appreciate thanks for it. having me on. I, pre- I I enjoyed it. Take care. Bye-bye. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.